Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Bimvoice podcast. Today's guest is a senior delivery lead at Jacobs, BIM manager for architecture, engineering, and construction, teacher, and mentor as well. Welcome, Brian Myers. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's so nice to have you here. Let's start by introducing yourself a little bit. All right. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a uh, senior digital delivery lead or just a digital delivery lead. And uh, basically, it's either a BIM manager or a BIM director role within Jacobs. And for those that are unfamiliar with Jacobs, it's one of, if not the largest combined architecture engineering firm in the world. And um, because of that, we have offices on virtually every continent. And um, that kind of makes it nice because it means that I can reach out to counterparts all over the world and ask them questions. And we can get to work on projects that are just all over the world. It also means that we can uh, start to see some of the technologies from, you know, that are being used all over the world. Um, as far as myself goes, uh, before I worked at Jacobs, um, I worked for a very large general contractor. And I, by the way, currently live near St. Louis, Missouri in the United States. And um, before that, I worked for another large architecture and engineering firm where I was the BIM director over um, the, a lot of the engineering side of the business. And uh, finally, I do a lot of training videos for places like LinkedIn Learning. And um, also, I am the owner of the largest Revit and BIM user group or just group on LinkedIn, which is called Revit Users. And um, this weekend, I'll probably go over 150,000 members as a part of Revit users. Um, immediately after we finish talking here, I'm going to uh, add in almost 3,000 new members, and that's going to put us up to about 149,000 members. So I think that I'll get another 1,000 over the course of the weekend. That's how fast that we're actually adding members. Wow, People that, that use Revit on a regular basis, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, my bad, I forgot to mention this. Actually, you are one of the most uh, famous, uh, famous or one of the most uh, uh, known uh, teachers or uh, teachers on LinkedIn for, for our industry. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the, this uh, the Revit group is, is the biggest maybe as well in, uh, in our industry. It is very close. Uh, obviously, Autodesk uh, Revit forums are much more busy. Um, that being said, for a very long time, uh, Revit City, um, which many people are familiar with because that's where you used to be able to download a lot of families and that sort of thing, um, was bigger. And I think that they still might be bigger. And then you had, um, there's another place called the um, Revit Forum. And the Revit Forum was the former... Uh, what used to be called the Zuga forums. That was the original online Revit forum. And um, you would think that they would actually be larger than me, but they're not. I, I am actually considerably larger than them. So I, I think that overall, it's probably the third largest Revit forum. 
Yeah, but uh, when we talk only about LinkedIn, I, I was thinking only about LinkedIn. I yeah, guess on the, the... LinkedIn it is absolutely, yeah. and there, there's nobody even close. Yeah, yeah. There, there are some uh, some uh, Beam uh, groups uh, that are close to one hundred thousand, but not over yet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 there's a few that are very close to one hundred thousand, and. Um, what happened is, is that LinkedIn recently changed their policies as far as how they promote their groups. Um, I mentioned that because six months ago, I was right around 100,000. And because of the way they now promote their groups, they try to steer people that have, like, let's say Revit in their profile toward anything that might be a Revit group. So now if someone clicks on groups and they're searching for new groups, mine's right at the top of the list. So usually anybody who's doing that goes, Revit, yes, I use that. Click, yeah. and they try to join my group. And because they've started doing that over the last few months, that's the reason why I've had so many new people, literally 50,000 new people try to join over the last few months. Wow. How, how do you manage this? Did you automate anything or you just go through each request? Uh, surprisingly enough, I actually go through each request. Now, I don't always open everybody's. Uh, there was a day where I did when we didn't have nearly as many members. Uh, but today, what I do is I look at their title. And if their title says that they're related to architecture or engineering, then I just let them in. If it says that they're a uh, supermodel, I go, no, you're not a supermodel. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, because um, uh, I uh, I seen uh, the the quality of the group is also good uh, because in the other groups, unfortunately, there is so much marketing and sales, uh, and uh, here you get also. Um, more about Revit, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was always my ambition when I first started this, is that I had been involved in local user groups before starting the Revit users. And I wanted to make this like a local user group where you had people that were actually professionals that were using the technology, not people that were constantly just salespeople coming in, pitching their wares. Yeah. I wanted people that were users and had users concerns and wanted to get away from all the sales pitch. So every time I see somebody in there that's trying to sell a product that or um, really isn't or talks about a topic that isn't related to BIM or Revit, uh, sometimes I'll see political posts or whatever. Oh my God. I'll just hit delete and and so, and, and I do that uh, once a day or sometimes twice a day. So I've had people say, I've never seen advertising in there. Oh, trust me, I have to delete them at least five or six times a day. Um, but I just do a diligent job of keeping it clean. And I've been doing that for over a decade now. Wow. I understand. But uh, wouldn't the people who are posting this kind of uh, posts, uh, are you not? Uh, are you uh, uh, sending them a warning to not do this anymore, or you just kick them out of the group? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it really depends on the individual. Uh, yeah. If 
if if I look at the post and I realize that this is an individual that probably belongs in the group, then I'll send them a message. I understand. If if they look if they appear to be in there for doing no more than advertising their product, uh, particularly if it says I am salesman for company XYZ. I'm thinking this person is not an end user that's going to get the value out of the group. They're yeah. just here to pit to sell their software. And then I just usually just kick them out. And uh, surprisingly enough, I only usually get one or two emails a year from people saying, why did you kick me out? Yeah. <laughs> and then I go, well, it's because you did this. Would you like to be brought back in? And usually the answer is yes. And I say, sure, not a problem. I bring them back in and then they usually don't do that again. So, Quality control. That's good. good quality control. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's good because otherwise the, the quality of the group will, uh, will deprecate. Exactly. And uh, I like to think that part of the reason why there are so many members isn't just that it's easy to click a button. It's because there is actual quality there. And hopefully because there is quality, they'll keep coming back and start to participate. So that's yes. the goal. Yes. What is BIM? How do you define BIM? Oh, how do I define BIM? I, I, I always say that Even though usually when you see BIM written, it's capital letters, capital B, capital I, capital M, I usually like to think of it as capital I and just a little B and a little M. Yeah, it's about a building. Yeah, there could be a model, but it's all about the information and how you can use the information. I resonate so much with what you just said. This is, this is amazing. Yeah. I love being able to do stuff with the information. And uh, too often uh, in the early days, people were concerned about how to model three-dimensional geometry when the real point of it wasn't necessarily modeling three-dimensional geometry unless you were trying to do renderings or unless you were trying to do clash detection against it, in which case maybe you did need to get it a little bit more exact. But you didn't need to have such things as drawing in the grill on a piece of mechanical equipment or, you know, a, a doorknob. It didn't make any sense to do that when you could just have a piece of information that said it was this kind of part or it was this piece of hardware associated with the door. So it's less about the model, though that can be vital depending on what you're trying to do, as much as it is about the information. Yes, uh, but when you mean like having this uh, piece of information about a specific piece, uh, you mean like on a paper? Uh, when, I, when I'm thinking about the 3D model, it's nice that we have uh, everything in, uh, in the same place or... Um, and you know where you can find things, right? What do you think about a more specific uh, way, like using Power BI to read from a document and bring that information in, right? Because with the drawings, it's it's too scattered. I feel like it's too scattered. We've, we have way too, too little control on, on things, right? Yes. Well, what, what what's interesting is I'll kind of bring in a topic that's pretty popular today, which is over the last few weeks, there's 
it's a fairly well-known letter that many uh, firms have written to Autodesk complaining about software development and how the tools have been developing slowly compared to how the cost has been rising. Now, the reason why I mention that is that what they're complaining about isn't just the cost, it's the fact that the tools aren't specific enough to what it is that they do. Now, what's important about that is that, think about all the different industry professionals that we have. May they be structural engineers, mechanical engineers, the architects, the interior designers, which kind of fall into the architecture, but they do some other things and I could keep on going. They each need tools that are, enable them to be able to do what they do best. It's very difficult to put all those different things into just one piece of software. Since it's difficult to put every tool that they need into one piece of software, or maybe they work on a variety of different kinds of project types, uh, a person that's a, um, civil engineer might work on bridges or they may work on um, the actual land or they may be doing highways. Each one of these is taking some slightly different tools, but you can draw information from all those different things. So what I believe in is that the tools should be able to share information. So you give the individual the right tool then pull the correct information out of that tool. And then once you have the right information, then you can ideally bring them to a point where somebody else who needs that information can now grab that information and either bring it into their own software or view it in something like Power BI, which would allow them to read the information from multiple different databases and uh, get a better big picture of what everybody else has been doing. Yeah, but it, this is um, something a little bit uh, more advanced. Uh, I don't think every office, design office, is using Power BI. Uh, even if they use Revit, uh, I'm afraid it's not very popular. Uh, even there are definitely maybe most of the bigger companies but uh, but uh, the biggest part of them are not using this. And um, what do you do then? Well, it's it's interesting. And I don't know if these numbers are still accurate or not because it's been several years since I've read them. But at one point I read that there was something along the lines of maybe it was 50, 60% of all architects that were practicing were just sole practitioners. But then you had the large firms. The large firms were doing only had maybe 30% of the architects, but they were doing something along the lines of 70% of the projects because they have so many of them that they can handle the larger projects, the bigger projects. Um, so even though there are a lot of people that candidly can't afford the software or work for small firms, it's amazing how many large firms are actually doing this. So I could argue that a lot of the 
a lot of the projects that are going out today, particularly larger projects, actually are using these tools. Now, they're not all using the same tools, but they are using a lot more of the tools than what oftentimes the industry thinks that they are. So that that puts the the smaller practitioner in an interesting position because how do you compete with these bigger firms that can afford the tools? And I, I think that the real answer is, is that you each go, just like you always have in the past, you go for the kinds of jobs that um, that you specialize in. And then you use the right tools for the jobs that you specialize in. Would it be nice if people that couldn't afford those tools or weren't in big enough firms uh, to be able to have those tools? Yes, it would be nice if they did. But if you can't, you make do with the processes that you can. You charge the fee that you need in order to be able to make a profit. And uh, you continue to build those customer relationships and continue to bring in work. I I think that there's actually right now, there's a big gap between the smaller firms and the larger firms and their capabilities just due to what resources that they have available. And um, as a result of that, I almost think that the clients kind of need to pick which type of firm, which individuals uh, make sense for their projects and what it is that they need based off the deliverables that they can get. I understand. Uh, But uh, weren't these companies complaining about this? Weren't these big companies? They are all big companies, right? They're not all big companies, but they tend to be. Yeah. Most of them, right? I don't uh, try to uh, put you in a bad position here, but you say they don't have uh, good enough arguments for this, for what they claim. Uh, good enough arguments. Uh, can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, like their request is founded or not, like, uh, or or they just need to look for to to learn to use other tools to that are complementary to Revit. I I think that they need to use whatever tool is right for them in order to be able to be competitive in the marketplace. Yeah. So. But but regarding the price, uh, they said as well that the the features and the yeah the performance of the software uh, has not ra- raised so much as as the price, right? So maybe the 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 complaint was yeah regarding this yeah. I, you are not uh, the CEO of Autodesk. Uh, you you cannot know about this. But. <laughs> well, uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that I followed Autodesk for well over 20 years. Um, I, I actually first started using AutoCAD. I learned AutoCAD back in 1989. Um, back then, there wasn't the internet. The, uh, I learned everything through Catalyst or Cadence magazines because those were the only two magazines that were distributed every month and you could read through them to find articles on the latest software. And I would uh, learn what it was that companies like Autodesk were doing. And um, over the years, Autodesk actually, they started off by pricing their software rather low. And that's how they were able to first start to get individuals to start purchasing their software. 
and forgive me if this conversation goes really long, but uh, the because okay. uh, I have a long story with this. Okay. The then 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 as time went on, uh, they realized that they weren't really going to get any bigger by uh, continuously just pushing AutoCAD is what they called their flagship product. Mm-hmm. So they decided to start to add more tools. And when they started doing that, they made products like LAN desktop, they made architectural desktop, um, mechanical desktop, and they called these desktops because they sat on top of AutoCAD and they worked with the AutoCAD environment. Over time, they started to develop other software such as Inventor or um, Civil 3D. Now they actually, I believe they actually purchased the product that eventually came Civil 3D, but they ended up bringing that in. Revit's the same way. They, uh, they actually purchased Revit and then brought that in. And this was all taking place somewhere around 2001, 2002. And they went from a company whose net worth was closing in on a billion dollars to, to a point where they were a company that was somewhere in the two to $3 billion US dollar range. So two, three times more revenue at that point. Then they started to change their licensing model. And when they changed their licensing model, um, people started to need to buy their suites of packages. So they got in all those different software programs combined into one box. And people just had to buy that one box of software for the most part. At this point, talking them, um, Archicad was probably the most popular architectural um, unless you wanted to say Vectorworks, but let's say Archicad was probably the most popular BIM software at that time. So when they wanted everybody to get Revit, people wanted to stay on architectural desktop because for the previous two or three years, they were all architectural desktop users if you were in the architecture industry. Then uh, Autodesk also, during this time period, put out their engineering software, which was AutoCAD MEP, you know, and uh, eventually they changed the names of their softwares. But anyway, what happened is, is that they then took Revit and they bundled it with architectural desktop. So everybody got Revit in the early days for free because they, were, they already were purchasing architectural mm. desktop, getting those updates on a regular basis. So everybody was getting Revit, and then they were just putting it on their shelves. So when it came time for them to switch over to a true BIM environment, though Autodesk used to argue that architectural desktop was a true BIM environment, which is now AutoCAD architecture after they renamed it, they then changed their marketing so that Revit was their BIM software and AutoCAD architecture was a way to sort of streamline the architectural process by adding windows, doors, walls, those sorts of things, standard detail components. And I will go back to answering your question. The, uh, and then as time went on, because they were Autodesk and everybody had AutoCAD or AutoCAD architecture, people just started to adopt 
Revit. And that's one of the reasons why, particularly in the United States, but even worldwide, it's really a spread. Um, Revit had became such a market dominant force. Now, if we go back to the pricing structure, um, what all that means is that they've put a lot of development in either purchasing other companies or in developing their online software offerings. And they need to make that money back from somewhere. Um, because no matter what people think, Autodesk doesn't just make money like this. <laughs> they, 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 they actually can lose money in certain divisions and they have in the past lost money in certain divisions. Uh, so they have budgets for each one of their divisions. And what they're doing right now is that they're trying to add more and more to their online offerings that interface with products like Revit or Navisworks or even AutoCAD. Uh, and now they are trying to make these online file sharing options, which is basically BIM 360 now, yes. where, where you can share files between offices, with the contractors, with clients, whatever the case may be. And the argument is, is that not enough companies, not enough firms are using these tools, which, which means that the value that they're getting with the huge price increases, you know, it doesn't match up. Now, I'm, I'm not arguing that the price increases aren't probably a little too much. They probably are, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. But the fact that... But the larger firms, the ones that are doing these big projects, are starting to adopt these tools. Mm -hmm. They are starting to bring them in because they're purchasing them anyway. And as a result of that, even though many of the smaller firms don't necessarily see it, a lot of the larger firms are using them. The larger firms that aren't using them, and in some cases they were some of those that had were part of that letter to Autodesk, um, all that means is that they're not really using those tools in their day-to-day -day practices. An argument can be made that eventually they're going to have to use those tools. So the question becomes, are they going to continue to pay the price that Autodesk demands, or are they going to move to a different software that's maybe a little bit less expensive that can produce very similar results and they can still share with their clients. Now, I think what the Autodesk way of looking at this situation is this, is that Autodesk is willing to actually lose a certain percentage of their customers because they already have such a big market base anyway, yeah. that by increasing their software costs or the amount of money from the subscriptions or programs, that it will offset the losses in their customer base. And then at that point, if, if that ever switches over where they lose so many customers that it no longer makes up for that increase in cost, then you're going to see them have to restructure the way that their business model actually is, whether that means dropping the price of the software, uh, giving the tools to those design firms that they want to see so they're willing to pay the more money 
or whatever the case may be. But, but the reason why I said the entire long story is this shouldn't be a shock to anybody. I, I read in the original article that when it got published, I can't remember the one who originally did it, uh, but they made it sound like this is new breaking news. I'm thinking to myself, no, 20 years ago, people were complaining the software cost too much and it wasn't getting developed enough. But look at where it was 20 years ago and look at where it is today. Look at the features that weren't being used 20 years ago that are being used today. Imagine where this is going to be 10 years from now, 15 years from now. People are going to be using those features and they're going to be complaining the software costs too much now. And there's basically, it's going to be the exact same complaints by the time I'm ready to retire in 25, 30 years, whatever it ends up being, as what I heard 25, 30 years ago, because people never want to pay X amount of dollars for software. And now the argument is, is that we legitimately can't afford it. And I understand that. But at that point, you just need to decide, can your business model support purchasing this software? Or do I need to go with another solution in order to stay in business? It's really no different than if you're a construction company and do you buy a, um, a better piece of hardware that can do something more efficiently? Or if you can't afford it, do you go with the old hammer and nails approach? You know, either way you can get the job done, but you have to do what it is that you can afford and still stay in business. I understand. But this this brings uh, more challenges. Uh, if you are going to migrate to other solutions, first and foremost, Autodesk is the biggest and have has maybe the best and most developed software as well. There, there is a reason why the most of us are using it. Right? Right. Second, the talent pool using these products, it's immense. There are a lot of people, right? If you go, if you switch to a new software, then you need to retrain people to learn the new software. And then if someone leaves, you need to find people with that specific talent or you will need to retrain that. So either way, so it, Autodesk, it's an, uh, they know where in what uh, privileged position they are. And uh, I think they just uh, push it uh, so uh, as far as they can until someone will complain, right? So if, if nobody's saying anything, they're just uh, pushing. And definitely many others will think about other reasons why it might be difficult to, to go to somewhere else. Yeah, th that, that is exactly right. And uh, there, there is no easy solution to this. If someone is really bragging about Autodesk, I usually will, I can kind of counter the point. If somebody is really saying, I don't like the way that Autodesk does business, I can usually counter the point. So I can argue this both ways. But um, the, the, the way that I usually say it is, imagine if you're an architecture and engineering firm and your client came to you and said, you know what? And all you were, were making was just enough to be able to get by. And your client came to you and said, the guy down the street, you know, they're, they're giving me so much more, even though they're not. And they're charging me 35% less. Can you drop your price? 
your response to that would probably be, well, let me think about this at first. And then once you realized that you were going to be losing money, you would probably say, well, we can't do that, but these are the benefits that we can provide to you. This is what makes us unique. We understand your business. We provide things the way that you're used to, to having them. We provide the data in a way that you can use it. That's the reason why we're worth spending the extra money. Or you would figure out some other way. Our, 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 our designs are so much more robust and nice. That's the reason why people come to you or whatever the case may be. Well, people don't think about that about Autodesk, but I could say the exact same thing about how Autodesk prices their things and markets their software and in, in that sort of thing. Um, there, there, there is a point where you'll realize that all they are is a business. And what I usually like to do is step back, take a deep breath when someone complains about the whole pricing structure and the way things are. And then I say, this is the reason why they're doing it. I understand if you don't like it. I understand if you can't afford it. And that's perfectly fine. So what other options do you have? And then you can break down what those other options are. And then you can adopt those other op options. That's what we do as an industry. Exactly. We, we, we're, we're architects. We're engineers. What do we do? Well, if, if there's a solution that's going to work every time, but it costs twice as much, do we adopt that solution? Maybe. But more than likely, and I'm talking products or whatever goes into a building. The, the real answer is, is that we'll probably go, well, isn't there a, a cheaper way that we can do this, a better way that we can do this, a better way that it can fit into our budget? And it's our job to make it work and find what the actual best solution is for this project for our clients. And too often we don't do that with our own staff. And that really leads to another half of this conversation, which is too often we do a very poor job as an industry as a whole on training our staff or providing them with the ability to grow, to adopt new technology, or to even learn more within their own industry. Now, we may have lunch and learns where people come in, you know, and present about their product, or we talk about what we did on a certain project. Why aren't we doing that with the software? Why aren't we uh, training the employees on that. It, it comes down. Now, the argument that I hear is that we don't have enough money to be able to do that. Okay. If you don't have enough money to be able to do that, I can understand. Um, but then are you putting that, are, are, are you just going to continue to fall behind? Or are you going to start to actually budget for this? Is maybe this is like a benefit to your employees. Are you going to demand that your employees start to learn on their own? Maybe tie that into their annual review so that, you know, they've, during the course of a year, they've improved an XYZ number of softwares. And then uh, once they have done that, then they can get the, the bigger raise that they deserve because they've been going through that course of self-improvement. What is the way of, of being able to get this education to the individuals? Now, my own job is supporting a lot of different things, but I also support 
the Revit users in our office. I haven't done production Revit work in probably seven years. Production Revit work. I've done a lot of Revit work. But I still know more than virtually every single individual in my own office when it comes to using the Revit software. Why? Because everybody focuses on the stuff that they use each and every day, and for good reason. But they have a tendency, because they're not demanded to expand their expertise, to learn what all those new features actually are. And because they, they don't have to learn the new things, or maybe there's not enough money in the budget for those to learn those new things, um, you then get letters like I put out to Autodesk saying, we never use these new features. Well, it's because you're not empowering your employees to actually be able to leverage the newer technologies that's going to enable them to be able to use these technologies, which can then start to justify the actual cost because then you can start to have more energy efficient buildings or you can start to produce your projects faster and reduce hours, be able to do clash detections that will save the project money. You start to understand that there is a it's, it's not just a software problem. It's actually, in, in my own opinion, it's a problem in how the industry deals with educating their employees and upgrading what it is that they can do and providing the services that they can provide. Uh, right now, um, there's only a handful of people out there that are really good at um, making suggestions on what new services that we as architecture or engineering firms can provide. Um, to this day, most of the firms still do the same things that they were doing 100 years ago, just instead of uh, doing it with a pen or a pencil and paper, uh, they're, they're now doing it in AutoCAD or they're doing it in Revit or ARCHICAD or whatever the software is. Yeah. You know, uh, there, is, there is other challenge as well. Uh, before, like uh, for 10 years or maybe 15 years ago, it was a little bit easier uh, software-wise, right? Because uh, if you knew how to use a product, then you, 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 do, you did only that uh, every day, right? Right. Uh, we got to a point where we, you really need to know a suite of softwares. You cannot uh, know only one. And this is a challenge in itself as well especially for people that are not very willing to 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 learn new things uh, because uh, there are people I, I a few years back I was I had this mindset I was not looking I just wanted to do my job in the best way possible with what I knew but I was not looking forward to learn new things of course I uh, I grow up <laughs> meanwhile but uh, I'm I'm thinking like uh, I'm definitely not the only one I was not the only one uh, there are definitely people that are thinking the same way still and uh, and this is a challenge in itself right uh, and cost wise as well because it's not only a software you need to do your job and it it will cost you more and in this way it's it's go it's going to be more difficult to 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 switch as well because well, this is another genius evil strategy from Autodesk because they have so many products, right? To achieve a, a product, like you start using InfraWorks, 
to to quickly design a bridge or a road, right? And after that, you use Tiverworks and maybe you put it in Revit. And you need all this. If you go from here, where do you go? You need to start to learn again three, four, five softwares to do that. So so this this overcomplicates things as well. The real point there is, though, is that is that 30%, 40%, however much extra that it costs, which compared to the cost of an employee isn't substantial usually. Um, is, is, is that what's prohibitive? Or is it the fact that you're not charging enough to be able to, because you're competing with seven other firms, which are also dropping the prices just to get that work in, in order to be able to afford it. Uh, so it's, I, I'm not saying that Autodesk or any of the software aren't playing a part in it. I, I'm, I'm saying that it's a bigger problem in the, uh, you know, in, in the way that we're doing our fee structures and everything else, because candidly, we're um, not necessarily charging enough in many cases for all the new technology, the new tools, the training, um, because we're trying to just win the work as opposed to necessarily have the latest and greatest technology, which potentially could reduce risk, make the design more efficient, and give an overall better product as an end result, if used correctly, for the project. And in some cases, in many cases, most cases maybe, um, the client isn't demanding it. So if the client isn't demanding it, then why should we do it? Yeah. and uh, but what's interesting, particularly for the larger firms, is that more and more we are seeing the client demanding it, which is one of the reasons why the investment is is getting put in there. Because otherwise, you know, the larger firms typically need the larger projects, and the clients that are demanding it are usually for the larger projects, particularly if they're going to be managing the facility or whatever, and. Um, because of that, uh, we have to buy a lot of the latest and greatest technologies, um, not just to stay competitive with the people down the street, but just to get our projects done. Hmm. So it, be- it becomes an investment for us. Yeah. Uh, we-, we can get back to uh, talking a little bit about what the customers are asking for, what they require a little bit after. I want, because we, we started this uh, conversation about Autodesk, I. I have uh, two more points about this, and one is this: uh, I work I work with uh, Autodesk products from 2019, uh, so it's over 10 years now, uh, and um, I worked with Tecla structures as well. What I've seen during the years, I have only some. Uh, I uh, I admire. We have some competition, Trimble. Uh, Nemechek and other uh, Bentley as well. I never worked with Bentley, unfortunately. But from my point of view, during these years, I've just seen like Autodesk getting bigger, stronger, wealthier, and and the the gap between them grows and grows and grows. And this cannot be good for anybody, except Autodesk, of course. It's not good, but the question is is to, and, and I'll actually ask you this question, 
why is Autodesk getting bigger? Well, to start from, they, they had, like, like you said, they had this strategy to acquire a lot of customers in the start. They, they were very smart how they promoted their software. They were like, it was like you, you had uh, Autodesk software, AutoCAD in every university and all over the place. They were smarter, smarter about this, of course. Something else, what they did, they bought a lot of companies like Revit, Navisworks, uh, Forge, and many, many others. They, even Maya, I think they bought it. They, they bought lots of softwares, right? I, I don't know how to precisely answer to your question, but uh, this, uh, this is what I see from my... Yeah, and they absolutely did that. Uh, but what, what's interesting is that people keep looking at Autodesk profits and they think, obviously, Autodesk keeps getting bigger. They start looking out there at the employees that are available and they think, obviously, Autodesk is getting bigger. But the truth is, is that if you look industry-wide and you look at all the different software products that are out there today, Autodesk is actually losing market share. The thing is, is that there's just so many people out there that have training in Autodesk software and other software that there's a bit of an illusion that they're getting bigger. But the truth is, Oddly enough, they actually aren't. Yes, they're making more money, but they no longer dominate the market quite as much as they used to because you do have other softwares that are now available and are absolutely vital to the workflows. In my own office, it, honestly, uh, we have, it's true that many of our architects and engineers spend a lot of time inside of Revit. Absolutely, they do. But a lot of them also spend time inside of their analysis softwares. Most of the time, analysis software is a different company from yeah. Autodesk. Um, many I know that I do a lot of rendering, or the people in my company do a lot of rendering, or there's a lot of conceptual design. It's true that we do some conceptual design inside of Revit, and we've gotten quite good at it. But we're also using SketchUp a lot. We're using a variety of other products a lot. And you start to realize that as we diversify in the software that we're starting to use, that actually Autodesk doesn't have as much control as what you probably think that they do. The reality of it is, is that what do they have control of? The thing that they probably have the most control of out of everything is the stuff that you use to do your construction documentation. Exactly. And I mean, that, that's, that's the big thing. It's not that they're dominating the industry as big as I think that some people think that they are. It's just that most of us use them for our construction documentation. So the question is, is, could we get away from using Autodesk and use something else? And the answer is absolutely. There's a lot of different software out there that would allow us to do three-dimensional BIM models very, very well. There are um, lots of programs out there that can replace AutoCAD. There are lots of programs out there that would allow us to do those things. But the industry as a whole looks at it and goes, okay, who is it that I can hire so I don't have to train them on something else? 
And the answer is, well, everybody knows an Autodesk software product, so they hire those people so that they don't have to train them on something else. And do I blame Autodesk for that? Oddly enough, I actually don't blame Autodesk for that, even though their business strategy has been quite successful in, in allowing that to occur. It's really our business models and how we approach our business is what's caused these conditions. Yeah, when you put it that way, it makes perfectly sense. I, I, yeah, it makes sense. It just makes sense. That doesn't mean that there's an easy answer to it. It just yeah. means that that's how we got to where we are today. We dug ourselves our own uh, hole. Uh, and we did this with something else, which is the other point I wanted to make. Mm -hmm. I'm very sad about the state of the open source software for our industry. If you want to have alternatives to Autodesk, why don't you throw away a few hundred bucks for a big company to, to uh, open source developers to try to develop uh, software that can, can be usable, can be more usable than, than there are right now, right? Because there are some solutions. Yeah. What do you think about open source? I both like open source and think that people that get too tied in the open source maybe just have frustrations toward the big companies. What I mean by that is I like the idea of open source software. And if open source software made sense to everybody, then everybody should be using software that's open source. The issue, though, with open source software is that what is in it for companies like Autodesk? Let me rephrase that. We've just been talking for the past 45 minutes on how Autodesk dominates the market. Imagine if they made their software open source and still charged money for it. Because open source doesn't mean free. It means that the source code is there so you can Access start to add code, on to it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Make it make it larger. Okay. So what does that mean? You could actually make an argument that makes companies like Autodesk even more dominant because suddenly everyone is developing their software based off of that code. I mean, and then um, what does that mean? Well, then we're probably paying these other companies X number of dollars, amount of money for their software solutions which they developed off of the open source code. Okay, that's fine. Is it going to be cheaper for us in the long run at that point? I mean, they've had to spend X amount of dollars just to get access to the code. If Even if the code was free, they're probably going to charge a considerable amount of money because they were well, they probably understand how much that it's worth. And um, will it actually be less expensive for firms to adopt it? I don't know the answer to that question. I think in some cases, the answer is going to be yes. And in some cases, the answer is going to be no. But, but ultimately, the question becomes, what's the benefit to the firms that have spent 20 years in developing their software to suddenly make their code to be open source? And when it potentially could cost them more money, unless it is they're going to get increased adoption of their software by, by doing it. Yeah. Alternately, I can see that you're thinking about saying something. I'll, I'll let you speak. I was not thinking about uh, the software companies going open source. I was 
thinking about designing companies, architectural firms to support the developers who are trying to do something. Uh, from this point of view, I was thinking. Uh, and when I when I say this, I say from I compare this with the IT industry. Okay. How it's possible to have all these programming languages and all these amazing tools to do every, you can do everything you want, even if it's web design, uh, backend software development, everything you find everything for free, right? There are still companies that are charging, like Oracle and other ones, but like if if this is working, like when you compare this to that, the mindset itself we have for uh, for our in our industry, we we have a very proprietary mindset. Like, and this is not only regarding software, but also uh, progress and research and everything. Companies don't use to share so much between them because it's competition, right? But but that's why in United they come came so far because they somebody put out a software or a programming language and after that many came and uh, contributed there right so from from this point of view uh, like i'm sure many will still use paid software for just one very simple reason for support right many will think like i don't i i need to have someone to call to fix me this or uh, you need to be a little bit more uh, more geeky uh, with soft, open software, of course. And nobody answers you uh, right away, right? So it's a little bit more difficult. It's, it, it's not for everybody, of course. But what I'm saying, like, the gap, like, it, it's very huge. Like, uh, I would like to have a little bit more more developed that, that part and that mindset in our industry, right? It, maybe it would make sense for smaller companies, right? If they manage to, uh, to work with open source software, they they can survive uh, one one uh, one man practice or something right I'm I'm thinking from this point of view, so from this uh, w when I compare it with IT, I see this huge gap. Because I I was trying to learn Python, I know some Python, I, I learned some JavaScript. You find everything, you don't and and something even more important, you find lots of courses as well. You find a lot, that's. That's really, really uh, something that I really like about the IT industry. Yeah. And I would like to see a little bit more in our, like uh, this more sharing-minded mindset, if I can put it this way. First thing that I'll say is I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, but, but as you described it, I, I find the parallels, once again, with the architecture and engineering industry, just amazing. And this isn't defending the paid just as much as just describing it. it let, let's say that you're an architectural firm uh, 15 years ago. What was one of the, the things that you were most concerned about? Well, it was probably sharing your AutoCAD files. Why were you concerned about sharing your AutoCAD files? You didn't want anybody else to use your details. You didn't want anybody to use the custom families that you've taken the time to actually physically, or sorry, blocks that you took the time to, to develop. You didn't want anybody to steal your fancy font, which was probably the same as the fancy font of the guy down the street, and, and start using that because that was part of your signature. 
or you've spent money developing it. Um, today, we have a lot of the same things where people seem to be somewhat resistant to share. And that's not so much true in my own company because we openly share this. Maybe they're Revit files or they're files out of other kinds of software. Um, goodness gracious, try to get an estimator to share how they do estimating. It's not happening. Um, and it's all because that's part of the custom formula that they've invested in and how they make money on a day-to-day -day basis. But now we're asking software companies to do the same thing, which, or we're asking people that are geeky to go in and start to develop these things and openly share their code. Now it's happening on a regular basis. If you look on, you know, whether it be Dynamo or in the AutoCAD days, Lisp routines or whatever the case may be. So th there has always been this culture where we share this information. There is sort of an open source thing going on that we don't always think about as being open source. Um, Dynamo is a great example of that today because now just about everybody shares their Dynamo codes online and uh, or will offer help on how to recreate those things. Um, so so I, I would actually argue that one is that you always have to figure out what the financial benefit is to the individuals that are working in those open source projects just so that they can justify being able to do it. And then there are conditions that allow for it. I guess my, my, my point is, is that I'm completely for the open source concept, but I think that um, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to implement than what people give it credit for. And um, I think that oftentimes there are open source programs that are out there that just over time became these are these paid programs and you can't really customize them all that much. So now we just think of them as part of the mainstream software packages. And, um, but I say all this, even though uh, right now in my own firm, we have uh, a little program called Keynote Manager that we use inside of Revit. And we absolutely love it because it manages the keynotes. And to the best of my knowledge, it's one person in the United States, who does all the development of it, he does it himself, he, and he sells this product, and you could argue that it's almost, an, you know, it, it goes along the same lines of them just developing their own products, being able to incorporate it into standard workflows, and enable companies to be more competitive, more efficient, that sort of thing. Um, so, I don't know if that really answers the question. I, I'm not against open source. I'm fully for it. It's just that I, I, th th there's a lot of business and technical issues that are involved in that. They kind of need to be solved in order for you to be able to do it successfully. Or you have to be a person like myself who's dedicated 10 years to a Revit users group with absolutely zero profit shown to it because I just absolutely love helping people and doing this sort of thing. And if you're that kind of person and you're willing to dedicate your time to doing it and share these programs, share this technology, share your knowledge, that is great. I will support you 100% of the way. And if I can adopt it and get anything out of it, I, I will use what it is that you've produced because it's, it's, worth, it's just worth gold. Um, so 
Yeah. I don't know if that answers the question or not, but uh... it it's uh, it's good enough. I, I will go a little bit deeper into this. Uh, okay. If I'm not mistaken, uh, if I'm not stretching this too much, we we have we use I IFC right now, right? Isn't IFC open source? We, we talk so much about Open Beam. What would be the difference if we we see that this is the problem? Like Beam, right? For Beam to work, we need cooperation, collaboration, openness, transparency, right? We we cannot do Beam only ourselves. We need to involve everybody in a, in the supply chain, right? And we uh, we have IFC. IFC might I don't know if it's uh, open source, but it's freely used, uh, available for use, right? And we talk so much about Open Beam. This is the whole idea behind building smart, isn't it? They, this is they they try to do like to open 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 things up. How important is is uh, transparency and openness and yeah this in with BIM? Uh, do do you see a challenge there? Are we are is this a challenge in our industry? It, it it's definitely a challenge in our industry. And one of the interesting things about IFC is that it's very good at sharing information and. I really appreciate that. Uh, one, one, one of the things though that is a little bit of a challenge is if you try to bring that data into most of the design software that's available today, you're never 100% sure what it is that you're going to get out of it. And the reason is, is that a lot of these firms uh, either don't map their, their parameters so that it matches up with the IFC, or if you bring it in, it's possible that you're whatever that three-dimensional model is that you've created, um, it's going to look terrible once you bring that data in because it's not going to have the right dimensions or you're not going to see a curve on an object or the right amount of detail. So you're going to have to redo that work. I'm not saying that IFC, I, IFC I think is a good start. I think it's a good start for sharing of information. And I'm all about the sharing of information, however way that that actually ends up being. The thing is, though, is I do sort of question it that if you're not on the same platform and you're trying to share that information between two different design softwares, whether or not that information is going to be completely useful or are you going to have to redo half of it so that your construction documentation looks proper when you're doing it? I can definitely second you to that. I'm not saying I see it's perfect. I, I just I just uh, published today a uh, part of the first episode where I had a guest that talked about IFC and you're not the only one that uh, doesn't think IFC it's is best is best IFC no but it's a start it's a starting point uh, and uh, what is more important for me is the mindset behind that like to share things to start to like to understand that we need to go out if uh, and uh, put the cards on the table if you want to to make a project in the most effective way from this point of view uh, regarding IFC Lucian uh, he also said that, like uh, the most important problem with IFC, like you you lose all these properties from a software, and it's not the best. But I, I'm talking about the, uh, like I said, the mindset. He he said that instead of a format, we would need uh, some interfaces that connect that uh, connects between two tools that will uh, make the transfer and uh, take read only the data you need in the software you need to use or. Uh, to see it, to visualize it, right? Absolutely, yeah. And th that's actually the reason why, and I realize this almost gets off topic, but I promise I'll, it won't. Oh, it's uh, perfect, no problem. That, 
that, that, that, that's the reason why I like programs like Navisworks, because you can start to bring in those shapes from a variety of different softwares, bring them all together, and they look generally right. Uh, it's the reason why something we were talking about at the very beginning, Microsoft BI, why I love Microsoft BI, is that you can export out that data, and then all you need to do is have the ability to map the cells, this cell to this cell, so that the information ties together in order to have these very graphic presentations of information. Uh, for those of those uh, people that are listening that don't understand what BI does. Power uh, BI, you mean Power, power BI? BI? Yes, Power BI, yes. Uh, power BI is uh, business intelligence. And what it allows you to do is create all sorts of graphs, charts. Um, it can even now uh, bring in shapes and those shapes can oftentimes look like floor plans so you can click on a room and then get the properties of the room just by selecting on that shape and um, what that allows you to do is as long as you can export it out into a some sort of spreadsheet kind of format you can then bring that into bi and be able to visualize your data in a wide variety of different ways and the other thing about that is, is that there is a free version of BI that's available as well. And it does not allow you to do such things as publish to the internet, but it does allow you to do a lot of the things that we're talking about, which is bring that data in and map the different cells so that, as an example, yeah, we, we, use, a, we use a program called Dorofus in order to generate our room data sheets. Now, a room data sheet will have furniture that might be inside of the space. Maybe it has the equipment that's inside of the space. Uh, it potentially could have the wall finishes or a variety of different stuff like that. But that means that you don't necessarily need to model it inside of the design software. You can just fill it in in one little area and say that there's 147 rooms that are exactly like this. And automatically have your data so you can start to do takeoffs or whatever it is that you want from the data that you've input into that software program. Well, what that allows you to do is that if you export the spreadsheet from that program and then you export the model from Revit, you can then tie the room number from one or the room name from one to the room number or name to the other. And then you can start to populate Microsoft Power BI with the data associated with um, both of those two sources. So suddenly you have graphs generated that might have actual square footages from Revit and the finishes from inside of the Power BI, or from, from, from my case, Dorofus brought in and you can view both of those just by clicking on the room inside of the Microsoft BI interface. So it all brings the data together. Yeah, yeah, and definitely exactly as is Power BI is, it should be like with so many tools we have today and so much available, like you just need some developers and you can build an interface that can, can, for example, make a very quick transfer from a structural analysis software to a Revit. I, definitely there are some integrations between some softwares, but let's say like the software you're using is not available or something else. 
Uh, yeah, and, and and may it be programs like Celebri or Navisworks or um, there's programs out there such as uh, Revisto, which allows you to view models, uh, or um, Power BI. Um, they they all allow you to export out data, bring them into that software, and then. Th- the software then interprets that and shows it the way that you want to be able to visualize it. What's interesting for me is that I actually think that there's less of a problem with the data export as much as there is a lack of tools that enable you to be able to bring all that data together to be able to visualize it and use it. So we started all this conversation talking about software and software development, but what's in the price of software, but what's really interesting is I actually think that there's a lack of tools to be able to use that information once it gets brought in. Properly, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, properly, correct. Because right now, there's a variety of ways that we can export the information out. And movements like IFC have been a big part of that. Yeah, they, they, they have really encouraged this workflow of this is we need to export the data out and it's been a wonderful thing because they have encouraged that uh but right now we need to have more software that can actually bring that data in and make sense of it yeah or we need to optimize ifc or we need to find a better uh format to it yeah because this uh if i understood correctly when you export to ifc you, you export with all the details and even if you do that when you import it you don't get it right uh, in a new software, so yeah, that uh, the file, the files this way become too big, uh, and it's not efficient. It's not, uh, uh, and you even don't get the uh, wished result. So yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. And and part of that problem is, um, in in many ways, if we're talking about the model itself as an example, is that you may have some design software, and SketchUp is kind of coming to mind right now, where you pick points, and then you can kind of stretch, pull, push and pull to get things to move and adjust. Well, how are those objects created? Well, it's from those points that you ended up picking and you're pushing and pulling them. Then again, Archicad might have it something that's just, you know, the way that they create their content may be totally different. The way that Revit creates its content may be totally different. So how do you get these objects to have the right shapes when they each create their shapes using different methods? Because d- d- does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. But I think between uh, the engineering tools like Archicad, Revit, AutoCAD, uh, Inventor, I don't, I'm not sure. But I don't think it's uh, the same difference that is between these softwares and SketchUp or Blender. SketchUp and Blender uses are using meshes, and these other ones, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I'm not an expert here, but I I just read about it. Uh, I might be wrong, uh, but uh, they are using nerves, which is uh, more precise kind of lines, and uh, that's why uh, the this uh, the the other softwares. Uh, you you have meshes. You don't have uh, the what what is behind doesn't matter so much. You only what you see outside, right? So, yeah. But that data still needs to be transferred from that 
original design software into the software that's going to be doing the documentation and how yeah. do you do that efficiently? Yeah. Um, and IFC actually has kind of the same problem because you can only export out so much information that all these different software programs can potentially understand. And then anything else just gets lost. And because it just gets lost, that means that we can't use it. Uh, it's, once again, that's not anything against IFC. It just means that it's something that we need to overcome and find solutions for. Yeah, yeah. But but you agree that uh, we need this mindset, this more open mindset, right? To cooperate and collaborate. This is vital in BIM, I guess. It, it absolutely is. And, and, and because it is all about the sharing of information. And when we think of information, we shouldn't just think of we're filling in a spreadsheet. What it really is, is what comes from up here. It came from somebody's mind or it came from information that somebody else entered in, in, in into a database, maybe cost information, or is this material supply? Is it, is it available if we're starting to talk about ordering materials and really taking this information downstream? Um, but ultimately it all came from somebody who input that information in and one form or another. So what we're really talking about is how do we share the intellectual capital of the individuals that are creating it? And it needs to be in some sort of format that uh, can be easily shared. And uh, whether that's IFC or uh, we're using open source or maybe Autodesk comes out with the magic button Mm -hmm. uh, program that just allows you to uh, do all this. Honestly, I don't care as long as we get that solution that allows us all to collaborate because that's what really ends up mattering. But of course, none of that matters if the individuals back in the, the firms aren't using the software in order to enter that information in so that the collaboration can take place. And the reason why they're not doing it is because they're not investing in that software and they're not investing in the software because they're not spending the money on the training for that or they don't have enough in their fees in order to be able to actually either adopt the software or train their employees or whatever the case may be. So as you take everything that we've talked about downstream, it all ties together. It's... I completely agree that having the open access to the information is probably the most vital thing in, in all of this. But the complications of that end goal just haven't been solved because may it be the price of the software or may it be that the employees don't know how to use it or that individual firms think that their clients don't need it even though their clients actually do. And their clients might not even know that they need it because they don't realize that what the capabilities of that are. And it gets worse because it's possible that the client might realize that they need it, but they don't have an employee that can actually use that information themselves for things like facilities management. And because they don't have an employee that can do that, well, that means they have to hire somebody which costs more money and they might have to train that person which costs more money. You notice how I keep bringing this back to money? <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, Everything's about money. 
everything's about money. And we, we, we could achieve this if we had unlimited budgets and figured out ways to get around this. But right now, um, it's, it, it's pretty easy to talk about sharing all this information in the open environment. And I'm completely for that. I think that it's great. Uh, too often, though, we criticize, be it be a software company or whoever it may be, for not taking those extra steps in order to do it. And then we make excuses ourselves for not actually investing in our employees or hiring the right individuals in order to be able to make this a reality or even selling our clients on it that this is needed. And that's the reason why we're charging a little bit of extra fee so that we can actually provide this extra value to them. Exactly. You see exactly uh, uh, what you just said. This is a vicious cycle. Like yeah. at the end, most of the clients would not know how to require to have better requirements in the project. How where do they learn about this? Isn't us consultants who they pay for consulting? And if we are not we don't have this as a purpose, then everything is stuck in the same uh, in the same state. This is this is maybe one of the most important reasons why why we struggle so so much with with adopting quicker beam and uh, more uh, progressive ways of working maybe yes absolutely we completely agree on that can we do something about this i i think it just takes patience and time and i part of the problem is is that our clients are a lot like us um, and when I say that, the design firms don't want to have to spend extra money for stuff that they can, um, that they just expect to be able to receive. Once again, we can go back to the letter where they're expecting to get more for their money. Well, so do, so do clients, and I don't blame them. They expect to get whatever the best is. Why? Well, one, because it makes sense, but two, because, well, we are the experts and they expect us to be able to advise them on these things. And we can already start to see, I can tell by the look on your face, you understand where I'm going with this. It, it, it continues the vicious cycle because our clients don't want to spend the money because they assume that we should just provide that to them. We don't want to spend the money for the technology because we assume that the technology should just be provided to us. Um, I'm oversimplifying it, I realize, because ultimately it does come down to we don't have an infinite supply of money or time, um, which ultimately equals money. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but we have the same motivations. And the, uh, so, so, so I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that um, if, if we're not investing in it, then we're not teaching the client how to do it. If the client's not going to invest in it, then we don't have the money in order to be able to adopt it it does become a vicious cycle. So you need to teach, so you then need to find what's the value to the client so that they'll spend the extra money on it. Now, much like the smaller firms can't always afford it, certain clients can't afford that either. But there are major companies in this world that can afford it. So you need to take the time, particularly with those companies or government agencies, as an example, that can actually afford to spend the extra money and then put aside 
some of that money so that you can invest in your own firm, your own technologies. Then as you start to adopt the new technologies, start paying for training for your employees based off of the extra money that you've been able to acquire from some of your other clients that could actually afford it and are buying into the process. Then you can start to promote it more to your other clients who will then realize you're kind of ahead of the industry. They're more likely to choose you. By that time, you've already have done it once or twice because you've adopted this. And uh, because you've done that, this is just part of your process now. So you're not thinking about it. And now you're doing it. You're providing it as a deliverable to the client. At this point, you're starting to learn that this is how I sell it to my clients because you've already given the speech several times to the clients, various clients. And um, it just slowly builds up. But ultimately, it comes down to there has to be value somewhere. And not to change the subject, but it directly reflects to this. One of my favorite things is training people, which we talked about the LinkedIn videos and that sort of thing. I can see that. But the thing is about that is that in order to train a person who happens to be in the industry for the last 40 years and is going to retire five years from now <laughs> is much different from how you train a person who's only been in the industry for two years and knows that they still have another 40, 50 years in this industry before they get out of it. And, and part of that's because they have, even if they're in the same role for whatever reasons, and it's because they have different motivations. So what you need to find is what is the value to that person that only has three years until retirement? And what is the value to that person that only, who's only been in our industry for two years? Do you give them the same message? And really to be the most effective, the answer is no, you don't give them the same message. The, the message you might give to the person who's uh, only has a few years until retirement is, is we really value your knowledge and skill set. We don't need you to become the ultimate expert in how to do this. But what we do need you to do is get behind the use of the technology, understand how it gets used, and understand just the basic picks and clicks so that you can teach that person, because we have a mentorship gap in our industry, of that young person so that they can learn how to use it. And they're eager to use it because they want to be that individual someday who is in that higher seniority brackets and, you know, has the respect of the owners of the company and that sort of thing. And they want to have the skills that allow them to move to maybe a different organization and step up the ladder. And we can't mentor those young people unless the older people also have the skills in order to be able to, well, mentor those, that younger staff. Okay. So that, that same sort of logic kind of eventually goes back to, the client relationships and us adopting BIM because we need to figure out what does that client actually benefit from it? Is it facilities management? Maybe they don't do any facilities management. Okay, so what's the value to them then if they don't do any facilities management? Maybe all they are is just a, a company that builds houses and then they walk away from the project at the end. 
they have a value for adopting it, but you have to find that value and sell them on what that value is. And as soon as you can show them what that extra value is, you're going to eliminate 5% of your construction cost. Can you give me an extra one or 2%, whatever it ends up being, and you're going to save 5% because we're doing the clash detections and we're not going to have to redo this in the field and it's not going to come out of your pocket? Sure, let's go ahead and do that. Okay, at that point, you now have the money that you can now start to invest in the technology and your employees and start to use this on projects. So it's not a overnight thing. It's something that could, it could take years, decades to actually get to a point where we're really sharing everything efficiently because everything is changing so fast and we're constantly adopting new technologies. We're constantly getting new clients, new employees, And we've got to find out where the value is for not just us, but for our clients so that we can sell the services so that they'll pay for those services so that we can then reinvest that money, those extra profits back into the business so that we now have the time and the expertise to be able to do everything that we need to be able to do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know that that was a long answer, but it, it's really that complicated. So, no, it's uh, it's it's perfectly fine. Regarding owners and facility managers, asset owners, do we agree they are a little bit outside or behind lag a little bit behind beam adoption when we talk about tools, uh, digitalization, and everything else and adjusting their requirements as well and uh, all these consultants designers we we use at least we use to use most advanced tools right constructors they are also start using more and more more uh, more efficient ways of working like what would be like for for a company let's say there is a company that knows there is beam out there they are outside. They they do the things the in in the old way, right? What would be the the minimum the the first steps they should take to get closer to what would be a more beam minded work way? Our, our our industry is kind of interesting because there is another big eye component that's out there, and that's the GIS industry which is just, it's usually when we're talking about GIS, we're talking about indicating everything that's outside of the building. So where are the utilities located at? Uh, Where's the manholes located at? Where's whatever big electrical boxes or equipment outside, where's that located at? So that we can find all these utilities, those sorts of things. And, but that's always been information as well. And so we have BIM, which has the big eye for information. We have GIS, which is the big eye for information. Now, theoretically, they should be very similar, but they're really not. And we rarely have that conversation about how do we tie these two things together. Now, I mention that because there is a third part, and I'm making this sort of shape with my hands, uh, to this triangle. And that is we have yet another group of people, which are the facilities managers. And they have their own software and their own ways to go about doing things. We have a tendency as organizations on the design side of things, whether it be I'm doing civil or whether or not I'm doing architectural or buildings, to think 
you should use our data. Look at how valuable it is. Why? I can't bring this into my software. There needs to also be sort of that IFC that allows us to transfer that data into their software. And we need to know what information do they actually need in order to be able to run their facilities. Oftentimes we have a tendency to just sort of assume what our client needs, or we end up asking them, what is it that you need? And then we expect them to come back with an intelligent answer to that question, even if we probe deep as far as, well, you know what? What we do is that we've got this room in the back and we, we have everything just printed off and the rolls, and we just put those rolls in a tube and we just shove them there in the back and then any time that we need a plan, well, we have our guy who's paid a little bit more than minimum wage walk back there and pull that roll out of the tube and he rolls it out and goes, yep, that's where it's at. And then he goes out to the site. How do you sell BIM to that individual? Well, there are ways to go about doing that, but those are the kinds of discussions that we need to start having because oftentimes... That is, that's what half the facilities managers in the world are doing, is that they're going back to plans from 1950 and looking at it and going, huh. And then they open up the plans from the renovation from 1976. Then they open up the plans from the renovation in 1984. And they're, they're trying to locate what it is that they need. When you can do that from your phone, from an app. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that you could actually take the time to scan all that in, and then yes, you actually could do that from an app, or you could, uh, or we could deliver that kind of information to them. But are we talking about going through the process of uh, creating that information in such a structure that they can use it? Are we providing them with the applications that they need so they can actually leverage the information that we're creating? so that they can do their jobs better? Are we creating conditions where they can take those rolls of paper and bring that information from the rolls of paper in? Are we having conversations about, did you know that you could actually scan all these documents? It's gonna cost X amount of dollars, but in the long term, this is gonna be what your value is. And then we can bring that into this software. And once it's into the software, then we can start to add data points, that's oftentimes what the GIS people end up doing, and um, um, start to draw information from it. And then you have everything in one place right here on a tablet and you can just walk through your building. Uh, but we're not having those conversations, or if we are, we don't know how to take those next steps in most cases in order to provide the clients with the tools that they need in order to be able to do their jobs better. And it's because, well, what we do is actually different from what they do. And we need to um, be able to leverage the information that they need, incorporate the information that we can create and find some happy middle where both of these things can come together and can actually be used. Yeah. So, so how do we go about doing that? Really, we, we need to have more conversations. And sadly enough, we need to have either more open source or we need to have more uh, software companies in general to come out with applications that allow the convergence of this information so that it just is a more streamlined process. Because right now there aren't, 
I don't know if there is an FM solution out there. There might be, but I don't know if there's an FM solution out there that really ties in great with what the architects and engineers produce so that it then tie, that isn't a custom solution. There are custom solutions um, so that they can actually uh, use the data that we produce. And uh, what is the value of the data that we produce to them? So that needs to be defined. And um, myself, we happen to work on the government a lot, on a lot of government projects. So there is a lot of data that we have to put in so that it can be transferred into those systems, but it's still far from being perfect. So it's something that we're working out. Yeah. Regarding BIM strategy at the organizational level, Yes. I don't, I'm very sure that there are many customers that they don't know they need BIM. Maybe they heard about it. They, they don't know they can leverage that. I'm sure. Are there many companies or customers, asset owners, facility managers that are aware about this and are doing this? Are they trying to implement BIM? Are they trying to have uh, employee employer information requirement or uh, yeah uh, a requirement for beam or how the information should be delivered to them so they can use it do you see any light in this you you mentioned you said there uh, they start to ask a little bit about it there are some customers yeah 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 and uh, uh whether or not we're talking about things like kobe data or uh, uh uniformat or you know whatever it is that we're what kind of information that we're talking about even though i've used the term bim a lot it's actually a term i kind of dislike and um the reason why i dislike it is that as an architecture firm as an engineering firm as a building owner um as a general contractor you're not in the job uh, your job is not bim it drives me crazy when people ask me, can I get a job in BIM? Sure, go, go, go do your BIMing somewhere. And now, uh, there, there, there isn't such a, there, nobody is, for the most part, no one is paying you to do BIM. Uh, what they're paying you for is uh, creating a building, creating a road, um, doing civil engineering, whatever the case may be, doing facilities management. Mm. So... I almost wish that we would drop the terminology of BIM because I think that oftentimes we tend to look at it as, well, this is just data that we input into a Revit family. No, it, it, it isn't. Oh, it's a parametric component. No, it, you know, one that adjusts. No, it, 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 that's not BIM. What we need to exchange, particularly on for the, the owners who have had the, the blueprints and they've just rolled them out for forever, well, guess what? What is a blueprint? Well, back in the day, in the, let's say it was the 1950s, they maybe drew it out on mylar or vellum and drew it in. And it's a piece of paper that happens to have information on it. And they've put the information in with a, whatever they're using. It's a building. True, it's not a model, but they could have created a model off of it. And, but it's full of information. Isn't this BIM? Not really, but you could argue that it is. The thing is, is that you is that everybody needs to have access to the information from the past, and they need to have access to the information and the intellectual 
capital that everybody brings into a project available to them. So the way that I look at this, my long-winded explanation, is that um, I look at this like, um, forget about them. What we need to do is what you really want to do, which is have more collaboration. I look at this as a collaboration platform where we can share information freely amongst the different parties. And um, once we've achieved that, that's what the real goal of all this is. Everything else that we've talked about up until this point is how do you go about achieving that? And uh, is that open source? Is that however way that you want to define it? Honestly, I don't care. I just want to achieve that end goal of everybody being able to collaborate with one another and uh, in whatever way that that means. And oftentimes that's going to be in the tool that best fits what their needs are, whether it's an open source tool or it's not an open source tool. I don't care. I just want to share that information, whether we're using IFC or using something else. I don't care. I just want to be able to share and use that information because I'll tell you right now that our, that, the facilities manager person, in most cases, doesn't care how they get that information. They just want access to it because they have a pipe that's broken um, in, in the building across the way, and they need to go get it fixed, and they need to be able to find it. They're not thinking about BIM. They're thinking, where's the pipe? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Fix it. Bust open this wall. I completely that's all that they care about. And if we start thinking more along the lines of, what are we doing? We're designing walls. We're, de we're designing HVA system, HVAC systems. We're, we're, we're designing electrical. We're designing roads. We happen to be using tools that allow us to do it more efficiently. And guess what? We can share it with everybody. Exactly. We can. And we can. And we asked about the definition of BIM toward the start of this as well. To me, that's the actual definition of BIM. It's the ability to actually just forget that it's even called BIM and say, you know what? We're doing our jobs. We're, we're creating the things that we need to create. We're doing it to the best of our capabilities. And then we can hand this information to the next person who can then use it so that they can use that information to the best of their capabilities. Exactly. And, and that's really what BIM is. Um, the problem is, is that uh, BIM has traditionally been used as a word uh, that's indicated disruption in process. We're going to do things differently. We're now going to adopt these BIM tools. So it brings on a little bit of scariness to people who have never had to use BIM. If you start dropping words like BIM because they look at this as, uh-oh, this is something different than what I've always had to do. Instead of, Guess what? I'm going to show you how to design that ceiling. You're going to be able to do it two or three projects down the road. So I know it's going to be some growing pains, but two or three projects down the road, you're going to be able to do it 10, 15% faster because you can do it 10, 15% faster. It's also going to be more accurate, by the way. It means that your boss isn't going to be yelling at you because of the extra billable hours that you're having to put toward this project and how you went over your, the hours that were scheduled for this. And that goes back to the motivations of each of the individuals that I talked about earlier, because does anybody really want to have their boss come up to them and, 
yell at them? Does the person who's the, the bean counter, the person who counts the money in the organization want to see all the extra hours paid toward the employees? No. So what do you do when you're talking about the process that we're discussing? You notice I didn't use that B word. <laughs> the, uh, what you do is that you, you tell it to the person that's managing the, the firm, you say, we're going to save hours because, I mean, we're going to end up um, saving money because we're actually reducing hours on this project and we're reducing risk because this is going to be more accurate. That's what they care about. Hmm. For the person that's downstream, what you tell them is, guess what? Your boss, they're not going to be yelling at you because you made 17 mistakes that they had to highlight with a yellow pen or put in blue beam and highlight or whatever they're using. And you're going to be able to do it in less hours. So your boss is going to be happier. So they're not going to be questioning your hours when you turn in your timesheet. I'm in. Two completely different answers to why you should be adopting it. But it gets both of them to start doing that so that they get the benefits that they perceive that they need from adopting it. Mm. New processes. Nothing was scary there. Yeah, it may take you a little while to learn but that's okay. Yes, your employees are going to take a little bit to learn, but once they do, you know, the time the next recession hits, you may be able to keep an extra one or two of them, not have to worry about your staffing. Mm -hmm. Also, you may be able to keep those valuable employees, particularly those that are five, 10 years in, they're usually jumping firms because, well, you're giving them the latest technologies, the stuff that they want to be able to use. We're talking employee retention here by allowing you to uh, adopt these things. And employee retention also saves firms money. And that, and what's really odd about all this is that when we talk about BIM, we're talking about all of these things. BIM is a disruption in process. But really, all you're doing is just doing your job differently. It's sharing the information available differently. And we're doing it more efficiently. And if we can convey it like that, then all the better. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Like, at the end of the day, you know, uh, one of the reasons I started this podcast, one of the goals with the podcast was to to shed some light, to help, to clarify among this confusion. It's way too much confusion. A lot of people, uh, lots of meanings for BIM, right? And the best approach, the best thing to do, it's just exactly this, like what you just said. Forget about the word, forget about everything. Just, you need to understand, like, at the end of the day, it's about common sense. If you work in a team with more parts, it's very important to understand that you need to cooperate to get the best product at the end. And how is going to be, not only for your own sake, for you to, to get done with your part, but to think about how the other, the next one in line can use best that, right? So it's about common sense. This should have been common sense, like transparency, cooperation, and working together, right? To get a project, the best out of it. Not to try to work as many hours as possible to build, to have that invoice as, as big as, uh, as possible, right? So, yeah, I completely agree with this. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's scary. I'm sure, like, most of people are scared about the term, like you said. They, they, 
they they think they need to do something very different and such. Yeah, there are tools that you can employ, but it's about how you can do better your job, how to deliver something better and think about the other one involved because we are a, like a team, right? We should think as a as a bigger team, not as a, like what is happening right now. It's sad. It's just a fight uh, and the legal fights and such in many projects. Yes. And uh, and that's because of miscommunication or not communicating. This is very important. We don't communicate. Each of us, each part wants to do their job, but they it's impossible to do this when you have so many pieces involved in the entire process and thinking only about what you want to do and how you want to do it, right? Yes. That's right. That, that that's that's exactly how I feel. And it, it leads us back to when we were talking about how do smaller firms um, get involved in using the technology. And it, 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 it's a real concern. It's actually one of the biggest concerns that I have. And it's because I really want to see the smaller firms succeed. And if you're using the right tools, then you have a chance to succeed against some of the bigger firms. Uh, the problem is, though, is that if you can't afford the technology that allows you to collaborate with the other project partners, then how do you compete? Then um, if, if the answer is, is that you have a very difficult time competing because you can no longer, uh, or, or working with the other project partners, I should say, but how do you compete in the industry? Uh, then, then, then how do you stay in business? And then whenever you start talking about how do you stay in business, that's where people start to get very defensive because you're talking about their very livelihoods, their lives. How is this going to affect them? Are they going to have to lay employees off? Are they going to lose their jobs? And um, how am I going to be able to pay for this when I have to compete with seven other companies, which are roughly my size, and we're all reducing our fees in order to pay for what it is that we're talking about? And uh, what is that? It's part of the ability to, to get in there and actually collaborate and um, be able to win more projects because we are part of this collaboration process. And is there an answer to it? You know, it, it could be open source, open source software. It actually, it could be. It could be paid software. You know, it could be that... Uh, Google finally comes out with that SketchUp version that actually does uh, BIM great and they only charge $150 a seat for it or whatever, you know. Google is not owning SketchUp anymore. They sold it to Trimble. It's Trimble who owns it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Hell yeah. They did that years ago. Yeah, I should have known. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but you know what you are saying, this, this is something I, I think Autodesk can do in the next years because this was another, uh, we, we go back to Autodesk. But uh, uh, another concerning aspect, if you can, yeah, it, it's good, it's positive as well because they invest so much in uh, in uh, bleeding edge technology, machine learning, artificial intelligence, right? And they, uh, Dalton Goodwin, uh, you you know him, and uh, he he brought out this point, like, and something else very important, they have access to so much data. He he just said like they they have so much data, like Google had before, right? Data is the the new oil right now, right? And they, they invest so much in, in developing this and finding out how to leverage this most. There can be a day when you just click in Revit what kind of building you want and you have it there. 
Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is that the Autodesk business model, and I covered the past pretty well, but the future business model has always been to move the software online. Now, if you move the software online, it gets to be even more interesting because not only are you, can you charge a fee for the software, but let's forget about that for a second. You mentioned the magic word, which was data. Because what that means is that they can now track every keystroke that you make as you're working <laughs> in the project because they have the software on their server. How do you know they don't do it yet? At some level, at least. At some level, at least. I know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, but what that's going to eventually mean is that they're going to know exactly what it is that, that you do on a regular basis. They're going to be able to track literally your keystrokes as you're using their software, which means they can now start to create uh, custom applications that are going to meet that client demand and charge you more for it. And as, as they're doing that, they'll also start sprinkling and advertising directly to you via email or whatever the communication system of the future is going to be. Maybe it's through the login page to all this software. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Saying, wouldn't it be nice if you could do this? And you're shaking your head going, <laughs> yes. And it's just like the targeted advertising that you might get in a search engine because you've typed in, I'm searching for a shirt. And then suddenly all you get is ads for shirts. <laughs> they, exactly. they, they can now do that with, the software programs and their, their, their add-in features and, and that sort of thing. So if you think that they're not looking at that big picture, then okay, think that they're not and just make yourself feel better. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, ultimately though, um, what that means is that since all that's going to be accessed online at that point, that means that the smaller firms are probably going to pay for it on a uh, per use sort of application basis. And then since they're paying for it on a per use application basis through Autodesk, that means that they only have, they mean you can almost actually charge or, or figure out how much the project is going to cost. You can actually figure that in based on the number of hours you think it's going to take for you to be able to do that project. And then uh, be able to budget that cost of your software usage directly into, you know. In the bid, in the tender, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But of course, that's all controlled by Autodesk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take that as you will. <laughs> yeah. If we make a segue to BIM careers. Okay. Let's go there. You said like uh, there are people asking you like, I want to work with BIM. Okay, there we, we need to think that we use BIM or we use this mindset, right? This approach, right? But the end product is to make a building or to, uh, to build something, right? To have something. Uh, but there, there is a while since we have these uh, jobs for BIM people, like BIM coordinators, BIM managers, BIM modelers now, right? Yeah. Can you uh, go a little bit into this? Absolutely. Um... When I started my career, and I'll answer the question, the, uh, um, a lot of us were called drafters or maybe draftsmen or draftsmen, depending on where exactly it is you're from. And then uh, we, uh, as we moved along, you became a CAD designer or a CAD draftsman because CAD was important because that meant you knew how to use CAD and not just draw with a pencil. Yeah. Then uh, people started uh, dropping that term and became designers. 
Uh, why? Because people that were just CAD drafters didn't necessarily know the the art form of drafting from back in the day when you had to do it with a pencil. So um, becoming a designer, well, you started to drop that aspect. Okay. Now, what changed? Well, at first they were using pencils, then they started using um, one kind of software program. Then they started to use, begin to use a variety of more software programs. And, uh, but no matter what they did, they were still people that were drawing floor plans or designing houses. So to get to the question, the answer is, what are the roles available? And the answer is, that's easy. Architects, engineers, estimators, schedulers. Um, don't make me go through the entire list of all the different construction <laughs> trades, project managers, yeah. project engineers. Why? Because this is all part of their workflow going forward. And they're each going to need to to be able to specialize in certain tools, certain equipment, in order to be able to do their jobs more effectively. Now, it's true you're going to have individuals that may work for um, companies that produce um, content, and I said like door manufacturers, window manufacturers, whatever. And you could argue maybe their job has been, but real, but realistically, they're still designers for those companies. They probably won't be just focused on making those parts. Yes, there will be a handful of people who do nothing but make those parts, make them. But for the most part, it's the exact same task that we've been doing for the last 30 years. Forget about the fact that there was a CAD draftsman. Forget about the fact that these individuals are Revit designers. No, you're not. You're a drafter. No, you're not. You're an engineer. You're an architect. You're a project manager or a project engineer. You're the same thing that you've always been because you're still getting paid to produce the exact same thing that you've always produced, which is this building, this road, this whatever. So what is the field? I actually recommend that people don't get into BIM. Don't get into a BIM role. You don't want a BIM role because 10, 15 years down the road, those BIM roles are all going to be automated. What, what the what you want to be is you want to be an, you want to be a design, a true designer. May that be an architect or an engineer. You want to be a project manager who's actually controlling the project. You want to be in those traditional roles of power and responsibility. You want to be the people that were actually doing the design work. Why? Because I'll tell you right now that in my own firm right now, everybody that we hire in the architecture department is an architect or they're very close to becoming an architect. You notice that I didn't say that we had architectural drafters because we've eliminated them. We don't need them anymore because the architect can just start to do their visualization, you know, as you know, do their aspect of their job directly in the software program. We have half probably of the drafters in our engineering department that we had 10, 15 years ago. Those roles for just traditional drawing, I want to do BIM, or you know, it's, it's going away. Now, if you're talking about things like the construction industry and somebody wants to uh, be a part of the construction industry and build the construction models, that's great. But really, that used to be people like 
um, maybe the estimators or the project engineers who used to review the plans and find out where the inconsistencies are, except now you're doing it three-dimensionally. So it's the same roles, a lot of the same education, a lot of the same experience that you need. So I don't really believe in a BIM role. I believe in a whatever traditional role that we've pretty much had in the industry because that's the direction that we're going and we're enabling those people to be able to use the new technology to advance and be able to use you know, their, their knowledge of the industry. And, and that hurts me to say because I actually started off as a draftsman, both on the board and as the AutoCAD person who had the, the old puck and digitizer. Um, somebody like me would have a hard time getting into the field the, way, the same way that I got into the field. I do have an architecture degree now, but the same way that I got into the field back when I was 17 years old because it'd be much harder to hire somebody like who I was back then with the knowledge that I had. Anyway, there are plenty of advertising with jobs as BIM coordinator, BIM manager. Yes, that's true. Let's say, for the sake of the conversation, for the people who want to, to work with BIM, they don't, they don't worry themselves what they are going to do in 10, 15 years. What do you, can you recommend them? Uh, uh, how can they break into this role? How can they get it? If they work only with AutoCAD, for example, or if they do something else, I don't know. It's a great question. And the, the, the real answer to that is um, really in many ways, it's the same thing that we've done for years as well, which is step into the role. Meaning um, one of the ways that I got into the role that I'm in is that um, way back in the day, I was the guy who um, knew how to run AutoCAD. And because I was the guy who knew how to run AutoCAD, I was the person that everybody would pull over and say, how do I do this? And since I was the guy who always got pulled over to ask, how do you do this? Because I had spent a little bit of my own time learning how to do that and fix those situations, that meant that the next time that there was a problem, same thing. Eventually, I knew how um, Bob, who's sitting here, how he he'd messed up this project three times. So when Mary, who's sitting here, had the same problem, I was a genius because I knew the answer because I had to figure <laughs> out Bob's problem. And uh, so because of that, and I was the person that came over and actually did that, uh, that meant that I became the expert in that particular area. Um, eventually, that meant that I became the expert in BIM. Why was I the expert in BIM? Not because I was the expert in BIM, it was because I happened to know one or two software programs and I knew what it took in order to get the job done. But I also took, spent a lot of time studying on my own. I was reading online or way, way back in the day, I was reading that Catalyst magazine or Cadence magazine and reading how, how you did certain things. Or maybe... Um, if you're in the engineering field, you learn how to do specific things related to engineering or specific things related to architecture. Once you become an expert in those areas or have at least knowledge in those areas and you become the expert in, in the office on that, 
then you have value to the, to the team. And as you gain value to the team, you can start to move into those roles because, yeah, I, I, I was a BIM coordinator. What does that mean? Well, we had a project and I brought that project into Navis Works or Celebre and, you know, I'm doing, I did clash detection on it and I distributed the reports out to the group. And over time, the engineers told me where I was doing things wrong and explained what that means. And I under, began to understand how a building should actually go together. And so my reports got more and more accurate and my teams became more and more efficient at it. Boom, suddenly I'm a BIM coordinator. Or maybe you've just done that in your own firm that you just got hired on at. And you've been doing those tasks, and that means that now when a BIM coordinator's job comes open at another firm, you can now apply for that, put that on your CV or, what, or whatever, and then get into the interview and say, yes, I have experience doing this. And eventually it takes you to there. Now, to be a BIM manager as opposed to a BIM coordinator, it's really more of the same. It's just more time, more experience, um, learning more about your industry. A lot of this is on your own time. And studying, being the, being the expert in your area. And once you become the expert in your area, suddenly the next time one of those roles comes open, you can say, yeah, I've done the vast majority of that. And then you can get hired to go into that. But in each of those cases, though, you've had experience in your own industry in order to be able to move into those roles. Now, it's true that there are some people that just get hired directly out of college as BIM coordinators. Um, and that's, that's fine. But they're really not much different than anybody else who's ever been in the industry, just meaning that those individuals probably when they came into the interview, they were able to speak very concisely and clearly about what their skills were, what it is that they can bring to the company. And those skills happen to include the ability to be, to be able to read a set of plans or open a software program, likely a software program that company already uses, and um, be able to get a job because of their knowledge that they had when they came in the door. There, once again, there's not a real, there's, there, there's no, gosh, all you have to do is take these seven classes, get this certificate, you're going to be the BIM person. It doesn't really work that way. Um, it, it, it takes a lot of dedication and effort, usually, in order to enter into this field and get good at it. In, in my own case, I oftentimes get asked, okay, how did you get into the role that you're in right now? Well, one, you can start to look at my LinkedIn profile and you begin to realize that I've jumped all over the place. But the reason why is that each one of them, for the most part, has been a better opportunity with more responsibilities. And as I gained experience from one opportunity, that meant I was then able to transfer to another role that gained me more experience and I just built upon it. Um, people that just have found me in the last year or two wonder how I got to where I'm at. But I'll say this, that back in 2006, nobody knew who I was. Um, 14 years later, I'm a senior, uh, essentially been manager for one of the largest architecture and engineering firms in, in the, actually in the entire world. I almost said the United States, but the entire world. 
and uh, I get to talk to the people that are in the upper management that actually control a lot of the things that I do on a day-to-day basis and influence some of their decisions. But that took 14 years for me to get into that role. So you just need to have time and patience and you know, yeah. dedicate your career toward becoming what it is that you want to do. Yeah, it's uh, it's lots of uh, efforts you need to put. Definitely, if you want to grow, you definitely need to put the effort. But there is something else. If you have good resources, you can go quicker. Yes. Can you can you share with us some resources that w- would you recommend today for someone instead of just reading books? Because reading books is well nice and fine, but is not the most efficient way to gain these skills right now. It's actually a tough question, and it would be really nice to say, go to this website or go to LinkedIn Learning and start to take all the videos. That is one of the... <laughs> I mean, it, it actually helps uh, because that, that gives you experience. And then if you start to do those sorts of things, you then have some portfolio work that you can then show to you know, companies. And uh, so you have some skills, you have a nice portfolio that's built up, and, and, and it helps. But... The best thing that I have ever done, two best things actually that I have ever done to advance my own career, one was um, start a Autodesk user group. The second thing that was the best thing that I did was for seven and a half years, I was actually the uh, tech support for an Autodesk reseller for the building products. Oh, yeah. Oh, the sales guys hated me because I was honest, but <laughs> uh, the but I was really good. Now, what the two things that those things have in common, or the one thing that those two things have in common, is it got me in front of a lot of people. A lot of people in the in the local area began to know who I was, and once I made connections, that meant that I could talk talk about my problems to the people's in other firms or maybe even my coworkers, but definitely people in other firms, they started providing me with answers. And then they started talking about technology that I had no idea what they were talking about. So then I started to research, what is this? <laughs> and I got jealous really fast when I realized it really was as good as what they were talking about. So I started to learn it. So making those contacts is a, is a, is a great way, but it's not just in learning what's available, but This is not an exaggeration when I say this. Of the jobs that I've been hired at, I would say close to 70% of the time, it's been because of people that I've known. Who you know actually does make a difference. Uh, And and that's not just um, going up to them and saying hi. It's actually having these technical conversations, expressing your concerns, learning from them, and then in turn, them learning from you. And in time, you build that relationship of trust. They begin to you know, understand you as a professional. And once that occurs, then they're much more likely to either hire you or go, I heard about this opening over at firm XYZ. If you're interested, and then you go over the firm XYZ, and, uh, and and then what's really amazing is if your is if your network is big enough, then they've talked to that person too, and they've already recommended you, so you've already have a foot in the door at that point, and it's all because your network is uh, incredibly large. And I, and and I'll and I'll mention this um, really quick. Um, 
that has actually happened to me with somebody else that you know, and that's Bill Carney. Um, in my own career, one of the reasons why I got hired on at a rather large architecture and engineering firm is because I had a, a uh, somebody that I met back several years earlier who recommended me to Bill Carney, who was already working for that architecture and engineering firm. And that's how I got that role. But I returned the favor because when I was getting ready to leave that architecture and engineering firm, um, two days before I actually left, another company called me and I said, you know, I can't do it because I've already accepted a job at this other firm, but I know this guy here would do great in the role. Wow. <laughs> and Bill ended up getting hired on at that company and his career kind of took off from there. So uh, we were able to return the favor on one another. That's so nice to hear. Yeah. The, uh, what you just said here, uh, like uh, you create a community or, or you start a podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, serious. No. But uh, there is something quite important here that people must understand. You, you make it sound very easy. But it's not. You need to put yourself out there. You need to put yourself and be vulnerable. This is not easy. You have no idea how much I struggle to, to do this, to start doing this. I second questioned myself so many times and I postponed it so many weeks until you know how I started, how I decided to do this. I just committed myself to a point where I could not just go back anymore. I just start telling people I will do this. I will do this podcast until I will have no, not, not the courage to go back and disappoint all these people. Yeah. But th this is not something easy to do. Like I had many battles with myself. Oh, I, 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 I live that every day. Um, may, may it be in the industry or may it be with, um, um, my Revit users group on LinkedIn, uh, where I have to sort through now almost a thousand people trying to join every single day. And I have to make myself actually do it. But I will say this, there, there are long-term benefits to putting yourself out there. There's long-term benefits to getting out there in the user group community. There's long-term benefits for you doing a podcast. There are, there are a lot of long-term benefits um, by making contacts any way that you can. But that also brings up one last important thing, and that is always make sure that you're... Now, be yourself, but always try to be professional. Don't do anything that you're going to regret because as soon as you start doing those things you're going to regret, may it be on social media or may it be in front of a group of people, that gets out. Um, I will say that my, my group of contacts in, in the St. Louis area and um, that contact base is pretty big. They, we often reach out to each other when it comes time to hire employees, not to ask, do you know if anyone's available, but we're on the verge of hiring that employee and ask, we know that he worked for you. What did you think of that person? Yeah. And just to get honest feedback about them and what their skill levels actually are. What are they like to be a coworker? Are they actually come across that way? And then if you start talking about getting into the kind of things that we're doing, which is in my case, the videos and you're doing the podcast, 
um, you start to build contacts across the industry, across the world. And they're a tight bunch too. And uh, eventually they start recommending you. And I've gotten video work because of uh, people in other countries, literally other countries that have recommended me to do video work. I'm not going to say it right now, but there's a company, a major company that you would recognize that's, uh, that the representative right now is in Brazil. And they reached out to me because they found me on my Revit users group on LinkedIn. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing some uh, speaking for them and a, uh, and, and probably a blog for them as well. Um, but it was just about getting yourself out there. And then, uh, because if you don't get yourself out there, simply making that LinkedIn profile or simply sending in a resume, oftentimes that isn't good enough. But if your, rep- if your reputation precedes you, oh, that goes so far. It really uh, does. Yeah. Uh, just a, a last clarification regarding this. Uh, I'm not saying this. Uh, it's important that everybody need, needs to understand this, that I'm not, I'm not saying this from, to highlight that how special we are. This is not, cannot be farther than the truth. What I'm trying to say, like everybody, I, I know you watching, listening this, you have the same struggles. Everybody has this uh, second guesses and all these doubts all the time. Everything we do, we have this, the mind creating all these steps blocks to to keep us in the comfort zone but that's why it's very important try to to break that try to break that and do that because we need our industry needs a lot more people to get out there to talk about what is not going so well in our industry and try to do something and yeah we in this way we 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 get higher we we raise the level of our industry as well and of our world and the planet at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and the other thing that I'll say is that I know that particularly at the start of this, I talked a lot about um, Autodesk and their pricing structure and that sort of thing. And there's going to be a lot of people that don't agree with me. And that's actually a very sensitive topic, but I'm willing to talk about it because that means it's going to raise discussions. And as you raise discussions, maybe you're going to change my opinion. Maybe you're going to prove that I was wrong. And I hope that you do because that makes me better in the long run. Um, I'll also say that um, I, there are very few people that are doing the kind of stuff that me and you are doing that... Um, really feel that they are better than anybody else in this industry. Uh, I mean, we, I mean we, 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 we've reached a point where we can have talks with people like, in my case, the Paul Aubins of the world or you know, people that are somewhat considered quote unquote famous. And you realize that they have the exact same insecurities, the exact same problems that we do. And they deal with them on a, a very regular basis. Uh, the people that oftentimes the young people in our industry idolize, they're just like you. They absolutely are just like you. And uh, the only thing is, is that they've been doing it longer and they're very willing to put themselves out there. And they're willing to, at times, even look foolish because ultimately that's one of the ways that you learn. Um, Probably the way that I've gotten as good as I have in my own industry is by making mistakes and asking questions. How do I solve this? And uh, 
trust me, a lot of my coworkers just say, that guy's not all that great or not that perfect. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they respect me. They like me. But, uh, but yes, we're, we, we just happen to be where we're at because we put ourselves out there. And um, we spend a lot of time um, learning and um, just trying to make ourselves better, just like you should be in, in the industry. Yeah, exactly. Uh, regarding what the other people think, it's impossible to be liked by everybody. There are going to be people that won't like what you do, but there are also going to be people that will see what you do and will appreciate the effort and will try to support you in a way or another. Something else, which I think it's very crucial here, you said about asking questions. I think this is a very undervalued skill. It's very, very, very important to dare to put yourself, make yourself vulnerable and ask. Even if you think it's a dumb question. This helped me many, many, for at least five years since I started seeing value in doing this. I, I never stopped anymore. And it, it changed my mind, my life, and it's keep changing it. It's very, very important. It's very uncomfortable, of course. You, you'll think always that, yeah, I will look like a dummy if I ask this. No, do it. Nobody will do anything. It won't do any harm. Like, I got a, a boss in a job that uh, played a very important role in this. He kept always, it, it was something I did not work before with. I worked with uh, formworks. Before I worked with designing bridges. And after that, I worked uh, for a brief period of time for, with, uh, for a co company that was renting formwork, right? And I, I, I did not work with formwork before. And I was always ask, telling him like, you know, I feel so dumb asking you this such a simple question. And he always told me, like from the first day until the last day, he told me this. There are no dumb questions. There are only dumb answers. And that became like a, the North Star for me. Oh, ab absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more that. That, that that was a good quote. I'll I'll have to remember that one actually. I'll, I'll take that one with me. That's good. Yeah, thank you. I I really uh, appreciate this from from his part. He helped me a lot, grow a lot as a person uh, and uh, as a professional. Mm -hmm. How can uh, this might be a redundant questions, but a question, but I will ask you anyway. How can people contact you if they want to ask you something? Oh, uh, great question. The uh, If you happen to see me on LinkedIn, you can always just send me a message. Um, I also have my uh, email, which is a good way to reach me. Um, that's uh, brian at brianmyers.us. Um, I'll actually even spell it. B-R-I-A-N at B-R-I-A-N-M-Y-E-R-S dot us everybody misspells meyer so i have to say it and, and uh, <laughs> i'll put and, it in the show notes that sounds great and um that, that that will definitely reach me and if you happen to see me online anywhere because i'm not just on linkedin i tend to be all over the place feel free to shoot me a message if if, if you send me a message i will almost always respond 
And it's uh, one of my passions in life to be able to help people. So please yeah. do it. So, yeah, uh, you can become the 1001 uh, connection request for for Brian. <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely can. I, I, I invite you to be. <laughs> and yeah, uh, watch his courses. I I watched many of his courses. I'm watching right now the BIM coordinator path. Uh, I watch somewhere there. And uh, I'm looking forward. I don't know if you said uh, during the recording or before it about the Power BI course you are going to publish, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, and uh, I will be recording that over the period of the next couple of weeks off and on. And uh, that means it will probably come out uh, maybe about three months from now after it goes through the editing process. Yeah. So keep yeah, an eye yeah, out for it for about three months. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. He puts out uh, out amazing content. So yeah, I really like it. Thank you very much for taking the time and uh, indulge myself. I, I appreciate it. It was a good conversation. Thank you. <laughs>